uh, the privilege to speak with you all this evening um, and on tomorrow. A lot of, lot of uh, good, courageous, healthy conversations and dialogue in front of us uh, over the next uh, 24 some odd hours. So I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, I bring you greetings from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, both my wife and I um, and my children, City Light Church is where uh, we labor, and it is indeed a labor of love. I'm a church plant that is uh, creeping up on two years old um, by God's grace, and, and he's doing tremendous work that we are super, super, super excited about uh, in the city of Vicksburg. Um, Steve has given me the assignment of talking about the gospel this evening, and in order to do so, I want to point you to Romans chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Romans chapter 3. Uh, our, our, fix, our, our fixation will be in verses 21 through 26. Uh, we will spend the majority of our time working through the entire chapter tonight. Uh, for the next couple of days, we'll spend time just drawing out the connection between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the issue of ethnic, racial, and cultural divide. Uh, so we will hopefully show you the connection, uh, but, 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 but then we will discuss what we, the church, actually need to do about it. And so there's some discussion time set up for myself and Steve on tomorrow evening, 6 p.m. in our, uh, our evening service together, where we'll have an opportunity to dialogue as well um, to talk about some, some, some steps and actions that the church itself can incorporate moving forward. Uh, so the first two sessions, we will preach and teach on the connection in more of a technical and doctrinal sense, but then the last session we will discuss, discuss this connection in more of a practical and applicational sense with some leanings in the, direct, in, in the direction of the technical and doctrinal. So the easiest way to set the stage for a discussion on the gospel and race is to talk about the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ can be described in many ways, but one way that we can describe it, particularly for our time tonight, is to describe it as a shift. It's an impossible shift from very bad to very good, from eternally bad to eternally good. A shift from one very bad position to another very good position. A shift from one eternally bad trajectory to another eternally good trajectory. The gospel represents the means by which this impossible shift happens. The gospel serves as the bridge for that shift. Because ultimately, when you think about life in general, what you have is basically life can be boiled down to just this sort of duality. This, this either when you survey all of life's inhabitants, when you survey all this world's inhabitants, rather, we are really only in two positions. And we're on really two trajectories. Romans 3 captures these two positions beautifully, and it, and it actually captures the, 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 the bridge or the, 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 the means by which the shift from one trajectory to another trajectory is made possible. And it, do, and it does so on two words. Two words that begin the transition from verses 9 through 20 to verses 21 through 31 are absolutely essential in understanding Romans chapter 3. But it's absolutely essential in understanding all of Romans and and in reality, all of the Bible, the entirety of the gospel can be wrapped up in these two words. These two words hold the tension for the entire gospel story. They hold the tension between one trajectory and the other trajectory, between one position and the other position. So what are the two words? The two words are, but now. 
Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation, as a propitiation, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Like so many other scriptures, they are connecting. These two words are connecting two separate thoughts together. But the question is, how are they connecting the thoughts? Sometimes connecting words signify that what is following those words are actually an explanation of the previous words or the previous thoughts. Other times the connecting words signify an expansion of the previous thoughts. But these two connecting words, this but now, represents something different in this text. Here, these connecting words, this but now, represents a shift in direction from the previous thoughts to new thoughts. The new thoughts coming after the but now will be moving in a totally different and radical direction from the previous thoughts that preceded the but now. So in order to see the radical transition, we have to look at the old thoughts that are found in Verses 9 through 20. Look with me at verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one is good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Listen to this. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Past, present, and future world may be held accountable to God. Black, white world, Asian, Hispanic world, Jew, Gentile world may be held accountable before God. Our our position and our trajectory before the but now is described in these words. This first passage that we just read or the part of our passage that we just read, is meant to answer one question for us. Can anyone stand before God on their own merit? On their own backing, if you will. When Paul asks the question, are we Jews any better off in verse 9 than the rest of the world, he is actually asking a valid question. And so the reality is, is if we can determine that even the Jews can't stand before God on their own merit, then it serves us to reason that there is no one else that could possibly stand on their own merit and and stand before God. It's a very valid question, especially if we concede that they, the Jews, those that are after Paul's own skin and ethnicity, they are the ones that have been given the Old Testament that we read. It was them who God chose as his covenant people. 
It was them who God said that he would be their God and they would be his people. It was them that we received the great ancient followers of God, such as Moses and David and Joseph and, and Abraham. It is them that we received the great prophets from God, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, and Elisha. So of all the people in the world, if there are any who would have the right to claim that they are truly righteous before God, or simply just closer to God than the rest of us, it would be these people. It would be this group of people, yet Paul is saying that they are no better off, according to his words here that we just read, than and even than any of us in the world. If I could just take a moment to add a parenthetical statement, isn't it interesting that in most of our American Christianity, our American Christian cultural wars that we fight, and the debates that we have in the church, very few of them involve the recovery of Judaic culture, music, and style. We debate whether pianos and organs are superior to guitars and drums. But we never debate whether shofars and ancient harps are superiors to piano, organs, guitars, and drums. We fight for cultural standards, but never fight for the culture that has the greatest claim to biblical legitimacy. Now, that is not an endorsement to introduce shofars and harps at next, uh, this coming Sunday morning service. The point that I'm trying to make is that instead of it being an, an endorsement, it is an encouragement to ask yourself if maybe the hard line that you carry for your particular cultural elements, such as drums, guitars, pianos, organs, etc., if maybe the reason that these debates take the shape that they do, maybe the reason is not so much because you are fighting for a more accurate way to reflect biblical worship, but rather you're fighting for a more accurate way to reflect your standard of worship by which all other standards of worship must conform to. Maybe we haven't even debated introducing Judaic elements because the point isn't to be biblical as much as it's just to be mine. Are you tracking with that? Most of the American debates are not about whether or not we'll be biblically accurate as much as it's, can I just keep my stuff? And anything outside of my stuff, I'm not sure I can see how that would be something Jesus would love. Are you tracking with that? What then happens in those particular moments is is that it's no longer serving God's purposes for biblical fidelity. That's not what we're fighting for. Instead, it's serving our purposes for cultural supremacy, and it happens on all sides of the cultural divide. But back to our earlier, back to the point that we're trying to make here about Paul. Paul says that even with their cultural and historical advantages as the Judaic culture, as it relates to the God of the Bible, as it relates to Jesus, that even they are still not better off than the rest of us. According to Paul, the man who would who we would describe as the worst sinner in the world, and the man who we would describe as the best sinner in the world, both have one glaring quality that completely disqualifies them before a holy God, and that is this, they are both sinners. Verse 9 says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under 
sin. Everyone is under sin. Today, I watched two college football teams battle their hearts out to secure a victory. They, they both had skilled players. They both, uh, both of the teams were highly motivated. But in the end, the home team pulled away and won 23 to 13. Their prize was that they moved to five and three. And almost guaranteed that they will not sniff the college football playoffs. The two teams were Michigan State and Purdue. Both who prior to the game were four and three. It was a game between mid-tier teams and what many in the room would argue a mid-tier conference. Michigan State proved to be the better team, and yet they were not the team. One may have outshined the other on this particular day, but in reality, neither rose to the standard of both being champions. This is ultimately how we should view the state of all people before God. Sure, when we compare ourselves by ourselves, you may find that some people possibly outshine others. But what often gets lost in these comparisons is that we are using a standard that in and of itself is insufficient to give us the result that we desire, which is favor with God. Paul is saying that God is not using that standard when he measures us. He's using his own standard, and it, is, and it is his standard that matters because he is the keeper of the keys to eternal life. So you may be a great guy in your circles. You may be a great lady in your circles. You may do all kinds of great things and help all kinds of wonderful people. Or you may even know some people that are even more awesome than you are in your circle. But whose standard are you measuring you and your friends against? What ruler are you using? Just a few weeks ago, Ligonier Ministries, a ministry that lost its founder, Dr. R.C. Sproul, late last year, released their second national state of theology study, which takes a deep dive look into the theological positions that Americans, both Bible-believing Americans and otherwise, um, and otherwise carry about the Christian faith. Americans, both Bible-believing and otherwise, what they think about the faith. They discovered that 52% of Bible-believing Americans agree with the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. They found out that 69% of Americans agree or disagree with this statement, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Folks, if we can't even get some of our foundational understandings about anthropology, in other words, about how how man is wired and how man is conditioned in the condition we are in before God, if we can't even get that part right, then we missed the opportunity to get the gospel right. These findings are gut-wrenching because at the very heart of the gospel is this fundamental reality. Listen. That we are not as good as we think we are. No one is as good as they believe themselves to be. But what has become painfully obvious is most of us are measuring ourselves by ourselves. And not using the one true standard that eternity is raised against. And that eternity hinges on. When Paul, instead of using the ruler that we create, when Paul uses the ruler of the ruler, we find verses 10 through 21 begin to make sense. The ones that we just read, the ones that say that our minds are corrupted by sin when it says no one understands God and no one seeks after 
God for themselves. The verses that declare that our mouths are even corrupted by sin, that their throat, when it says that their throat is an open grave and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The, one, the, the, the verses that declare that our movements are corrupted by sin, when it says that in their paths are ruin and misery. The verses that declare that our motivations are even corrupted by sin when it says that there is no fear of God before their very eyes. In other words, what Paul is saying is that everything about us is marred by sin. And that's not me saying that. It's Paul saying it. And that's not Paul saying, yeah, you Gentiles out there. That's Paul saying that about everybody. David, the great king of Israel, describes our condition accurately in Psalms when he writes in Psalms 51 that, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Christian Standard Bible gives a more sharp rendition of that or translation of that text when it, said, when it says this, Behold, I was declared guilty before I was born. I was declared guilty before I was born. You may say to yourself, man, that seems a little unfair. Right? But let me, let me ask you a question, right? If you, if you had a pretty decent soccer league, maybe, 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 you, maybe, you have a, maybe you play in a soccer league, or maybe your kids, your children play in a soccer league, and there's a soccer rec league around town, and there's a few good players that, that, that stand out in this soccer league that everybody enjoys seeing and watching play, and people all, people all around the soccer league brag on these two particular players, and they say, man, these guys are really, really good. And the whole league's high on them, right? They love these guys. What would Ronaldo or Messi think about those players? They'd be high on them. They'd be impressed. They'd be amazed by their ability to really, really kill it in the rec league. What if you had a decent basketball rec league you were playing in, and you had a few pretty good players, a couple of them that maybe could even dunk, a few guys that could shoot a bunch of, of three-pointers, and everybody was high on them in the rec league. Everybody thought they were fantastic ball players. What would Michael Jordan think about those players? What would, what would LeBron James think about those players? Think he'd be impressed, maybe scared of them? So, oh, no, I can't play against those guys. You're going to have to find somebody else to play with them. Wouldn't be impressed, would he? See, what you have to understand is that what may seem difficult in your eyes, what may seem hard in your eyes, the idea that one sin renders us guilty before God only seems difficult in your eyes because you are sinful, just like me and just like everybody in the world. And so we can't even render, we can't even process what true holiness looks like. And so therefore, what may seem difficult is totally within reason when you think about the perfection of the God of the universe. Paul finishes this first half by saying that, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Talking about God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, no human being, in verse 20, 
will be justified in the sight of God by doing the works of the law. No human being will be justified by simply obeying God's law. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because with the law comes not only the standard to obey, but the unveiling of our shortcoming to that standard. With the law comes, comes, comes the knowledge of our sin. But also with the law comes the, that knowledge, or, or rather with that knowledge, comes the guilt of our sin before God. See, we're okay if we're measuring ourselves by ourselves, but if the standard is God, we are facing death. Because Paul tells us that the wages of sin, any and all sin, is death. The payment for sin is death. We see this from the very beginning. From the very beginning of creation, Adam and Eve created in a garden, a garden with, with, with all goodness and all joy, all tranquility, a garden with everything they needed, lacking nothing. And they were given one commandment, one instruction, do not eat of the fruit of this tree, and they chose to eat of the fruit of this tree. They sinned one time. You know how much you, do you know how much I would how much I would give to sin one time? Do you know do you know how much I would give do you know how much my wife would give to say that I sinned one Time? She's looking for a pocketbook right now. <laughs> One time. And they were banished forever. From the garden, they faced God's wrath. Romans 5 and 12 tells us that therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Romans 5 and 18 tells us one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Romans 5 and 19 tells us that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Our condition before God is based on our own, our our condition rather before God based on our own merit is not a healthy one. You will not earn God's favor because you are good enough, because no one is simply good enough. Adam and Eve sinned one time and they were banished from the garden. You will not earn God's eternal reward by doing enough good works because your best works, according to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, are even oftentimes tainted with sinful and selfish thoughts and intentions and motivations. And so understanding this is key to understanding the but now of verse 21. Misunderstanding And this leads, or misunderstandings regarding this, leads to all sorts of other misunderstandings. Take, for example, verse 23 in chapter 3, where it says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, many of us have heard that verse. We grew up listening to that verse. We grew up hearing that verse and reading that verse. And we have heard family members quote that verse. And we've possibly quoted it ourselves. But what we've often quoted as a source of comfort and reassurance is not, in fact, a source of comfort and reassurance. We've quoted that verse to signify or to state to ourselves that, well, nobody is perfect. We all fall short. 
That's not the point of that verse. As a matter of fact, without the but now of verse 21, the verse is not reassuring. The verse is alarming. It isn't simply whispering sweet reassurances in our ears that nobody is perfect. It is yelling out to us that everybody is guilty. It's a very scary verse. Except for the fact that we read these words, but now. But now, we begin to hear a declaration of dramatic rescue and divine intervention. We are all destined and deserving of divine judgment. We have not improved upon our fallen parents, Adam and Eve. In fact, we have exasperated their condition. We have gotten worse. And if one sin is sufficient enough to banish them from the presence of God, what on earth should be done with you and me? It is here that Paul introduces these two words, but now. These two words represent the shift from one very bad position to one very good position, from one eternally bad trajectory to one eternally good trajectory. A shift from the worst possible scenario imaginable to the best possible scenario conceivable. Every one of us are sinners, but now. Every one of us are guilty, but now. Every one of us are facing the penalty of eternal death, but now. Now, every one of us in our natural condition are incapable of standing before God and receiving pardon for all of the wrong that we've done. But now, with these two words, Paul moves us from the position that we had before God's intervention to the position that we enjoy because of his intervention. And that's where verses 21 through 26 come in. Believe it or not, this this is one long Greek sentence. Verses 21 through 26, it's like, the, it's like an English professor's nightmare. It's just run on, on top of run on, on top of run on. It does not stop. This is one sentence in the Greek language. Some of our early theologians, including the, the great reformer Martin Luther, called this very long run on sentence the center of the letter of Romans and quite possibly the center of the entire New Testament. It is one of the clearest and tightest summaries of the gospel in all of the Bible. In fact, I have always been confident that if you can understand this sentence rightly, then you will understand the gospel. So in our remaining time together, let's just grab a few things out of this sentence. It says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God, verse 22, of God, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness is the quality of being right. It is the position of being right. According to man's standards, this may be achievable, but again, we aren't measuring ourselves against man's ruler. We are measuring ourselves against the ruler's ruler, and we realize that it is impossible That's what verse 23, that's why verse 23 serves us so well. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It declares that none of us can meet the righteous standard. As we lay our deeds on the balanced scales of the universe and God lays the standard in which his glory demands upon us, we find ourselves in an impossible comparison. 
The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, when he declared that he had a vision in the sixth chapter of his writings, he says that he sees the Lord sitting up on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the entire temple in which he stands. He says there are seraphim there, and each has six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly with. And he called to And they called one to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. Three declarations to declare that he is superlatively holy. Not just holier than somebody else. Not just holy. Not just holier than the other, but the holiest. And the whole earth is full of his glory, they declare. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, man, it's good that I'm here. I said, woe is me. I have no business being in here with this much holiness. He continues, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Righteousness, holiness brings us to our need when we rightly discern it and rightly see it, we realize that we are not that. We may be a lot of things, but that we are not. Peter saw the same thing in the New Testament when he, when Jesus performs the miracle of creating fish from nowhere after they had been fishing all day and found nothing, found and caught nothing. Jesus says, cast the net again. It's like, man, what are you talking about? Who is this guy? Go ahead, cast a net. They cast a net, and all of a sudden, fish are everywhere, and Peter realizes who's in the boat with him. Peter says in Luke chapter 5, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He realizes that holiness, I got no business being here. We simply aren't good enough to measure up to such perfection and glorious holiness, and so God, in order to show himself gracious, merciful, and just, moves, listen, outside of your conformance to secure righteousness. He moves outside of your conformance to his righteous standard to secure your righteousness. The righteousness apart from the law. The righteousness that comes outside of our behavior and instead comes in the form of a person. Jesus Christ becomes the righteousness that we ourselves were unable to secure on our own. The Father turns to his Son to secure righteousness for us because it is only his Son that can hold up to the scrutiny of that standard required by the law. He's the only one able to live the life that the law required. So now instead of righteousness being secured through our conformance to the righteous standard, our righteousness is secured through our trust and reliance upon the one who did it for us. But now, in this shift we also see verse 24, and we are justified as, are justified by his grace as a gift. The gospel is about justification, meaning it is about, the justification is, the, is a legal term declaring us not guilty. The gospel is about declaring you and I not guilty. Not without God, of course. Without God stepping in to fix this situation, we remain guilty because we have sinned against the sinless. 
We have betrayed the one who perfectly loved us. No matter how much we meant it or didn't mean it. Do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? Oftentimes we say, well, I didn't mean, I didn't mean it. It has no bearing on the fact that we did it. Murderer can say, man, I was just worked up that day. I'm sorry. Just don't understand, man, how my boss was just coming at me in all, all kinds of crazy ways. It doesn't matter. You're still guilty. The prosecutor in this particular case, however, is Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He makes his case to this holy judge that Brian Crawford, have you seen this kid? You seen the dirt on this kid? Lord, you must not have saw him in high school. Man, if you would have saw him in high school, there's no way you let him get up there and preach. He's a crafty accuser, a crafty prosecutor. But what he doesn't understand, what Satan doesn't understand, is that not only is the judge the judge, but the judge is the advocate. Because Jesus Christ is the defense lawyer who stands in the place defending the guilty. But what he doesn't understand is not only the judge also serving, or the judge has given us this advocate to serve as our defense, but the judge has assigned this advocate to absorb the punishment for the guilty. So the lawyer bears the weight of his guilty party. We are declared not guilty. Understand, not because we're not guilty. We are declared not guilty because of the one who absorbs our guilt. And by so doing, we become not guilty. Justified by his grace as a gift. In this shift, we also see redemption from sin's bondage through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the verse declares. According to the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, redemption is the release of people. The release of people. The release of animals, the release of property from bondage through, listen, outside help. Redemption through outside help. Obviously, my preacher's not that great. My whole family is leaving. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I know, I know, I know bathroom is calling. <laughs> but redemption is the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through outside help. What we sometimes fail to realize is that the sin is that sin is not simply what we do, but it is a part of who we are without Christ. We are not simply actively sinning, we are bound to sin. And so there must be redemption from that bondage through outside help. Paul told us in Romans, and later on in Romans chapter 6, he says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He said, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Paul declared that we are slaves to sin. And so our release, our freedom, comes through outside help. The work of salvation is not just a rescue from the punishment of sin. 
It is a liberation from the bondage of sin. Christ not only saves you from your sin, but he frees you from the mastery of sin. And whom the Son sets free is truly free indeed. In this shift, we also see propitiation. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul, who we spoke of earlier, defines the term propitiation in this way. It represents a change in God's attitude. So that he moves from being at enmity with us, being at odds with us, to being for us. Through the process of propitiation, he continues, we are restored into fellowship and favor with him, end quote. Because God is just, he requires punishment for any transgression of his holy law. Without the shedding of blood, it is declared in Scripture, there is no forgiveness of sin. Crimes declare or crimes warrant punishment, all crimes. And the weight of the crime declares the weight of the punishment. In other words, your sin does not get an ant killed. Your sin declares something else is necessary. Holy treason against God requires it. And so a spotless sacrifice was required for the sin of the world. And Christ was put forward as the propitiation. It means that once and for all, God brought eternal satisfaction to himself for our continued sin. Our continued sin debt required that he put forward the only one in all of the universe that was sufficient to cover all the sins of the world. And that was his very own son, Jesus. By doing so, God the Father, according to Paul in verse 26, becomes the justifier while remaining just. Without Christ's sacrifice, God the Father couldn't hold the tension that's created from his own standard. You understand that? See, he could declare us not guilty, but he would cease to be just according to his own standard if he just declared us not guilty without, paying, without somebody paying the price for it. Do you, does that make sense? It's like a judge walking in and telling a murderer, hey, go. That's not just. Not according to the standards of our laws, right? So God has his own standards. His own standards he's created. And if he tells all of us, hey, just go free. Go, go, go. Run before somebody catches you then he's no longer just according to the standards he's created. But at the same time, if he preserves the standard of justice, then that means all of us are guilty. And he can't declare us not guilty. So what does he do? By giving us Christ, he preserves his standard of justice because crime is punished, treason is punished, betrayal is punished, sin is punished. And yet he still reserves the right to grant mercy and declare all those that have sinned against him. Not guilty. But now. But now. In in that declaration, what happens is, if 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 you, you recall it, first we were talking about Jew and Gentile. 
And then we move from Jew and Gentile, because you notice there's the distinctions in nations and traditions and cultures and, and superiorities based on that and created in that and weights are created in that and, 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 and places of prominence are created in that. But then we moved, right? We moved from Jew and Gentile to just basically all being sinful, right? Now everybody's in this, this mud pit. Nobody can take credit for it, right? I mean, I mean nobody, nobody can say I'm better than the other. We're all down here. But then Christ comes, and what happens? Now a new distinction is created, those that have trusted Christ and those that have not. But guess what? Those that, that trusted Christ, they, no long, they, they, can't, they can't say that they have a leg up on these, old, these people over here because their boast is only in, in what Christ has done. So there's a distinction created that transcends families, that transcends ethnicities, that transcends cultures. But that distinction is based on one boast, the boast of Christ. Amen. So there's one new man, one new race, one new family. But that, even that family doesn't have its own superiority outside of Jesus Christ. So that, that's the blessing that we'll talk about tomorrow, the blessing of this new family and what it requires of us as people that are still living in this culture what it requires of us in order to see it realized. But lastly, let me say this. Faith firmly rooted and grounded in Christ is the linchpin that holds all of this together. Notice that the action that connects all these previously mentioned blessings in Christ to us is faith. Verse 22 says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the righteousness of God that comes apart from the law is given to all who believe through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, your works won't bring you salvation. Your faith in Jesus Christ will. Your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior of the world and Lord of all. How will you be saved from your sin? How will you be declared not guilty in the courts of heaven? How will you get the sacrifice applied to you? How will you be freed from the bondage of sin's curse? Sin Sin's grip is, is relinquished by faith. By faith. Not by mental assent. Not just by declaring a couple of facts about Jesus. Understand that. James says that even the demons tremble at the idea that God is one. In other words, the demons know who God is. But faith is a, an action of trust and reliance. No, we are not saved by works. But faith does not come alone. It, it comes with a trust and a dependence on God, not just an acknowledgement that he is God. Demons know that. Devil knows that. Faith is trust, dependence but it is all that is required. The gospel is the good news concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. While the gospel may include your testimony, it is more than your testimony. While, the gospel, the, your, while your embracing of the gospel may have led you and still leads you to a transformed life where you now live and how you live and see the world, the gospel is more than a change of behavior. While the gospel may and should transform how you view your neighbors and drive you to seek their well-being and their comfort, even over your own at times, 
It may drive you to fight harder for the common good of everyone. It is more than all of that. The gospel is the message of Jesus granting us a righteousness that we could not grant ourselves. It is the message of Jesus redeeming us from the mastery and the curse of sin. It is the message of Jesus Christ becoming the perfect sacrifice that satisfies God's justice by dying on the cross at Calvary. It is the power of God that leads us to salvation for all that believe, whether Jew or whether Greek. It is the message of Jesus dying on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God that was initially due to you and I. It is the word about Christ that literally makes a way, where he literally makes a way out of no way because we were dead in our trespasses and sins and well on our way to hell as sufficient punishment for our sins. But Jesus came down from the heavens emptied himself of his divine rights, lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, and now stands ready to credit us with eternal life if we will simply embrace him and trust him as Lord and as Savior by what we call faith. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that gospel that leads us to the oneness we'll talk about on tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we appreciate the opportunity that we have to read your word, to study your word, to be moved by your word, Lord God, and to prayerfully grow from your word. We ask, Lord, that you would use this message on tonight to stir our hearts, to continue on in the faith that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ, and to to be more appreciative of the glorious work that he has done on our behalf. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name.